people love a love story for whatever reason. Did any of you see all the hype about the royal wedding? Anybody? Did, did, did any, this is a better question. Did anybody not see the hype about the royal wedding? Right, it's just kind of everywhere. And some people just, you know, you just you love that kind of thing. I think it's the pageantry. I think it's all the, 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 the storybook feel to it. At some point, it's the characters, right? It's the people that are involved that make up why a love story is such a powerful thing. And you see this actually multiple times in Scripture. You have Isaac and Rebekah. It's a powerful love story. You have uh, Jacob and Rachel. You have the Song of Solomon, which is basically an extended love story. And then you have the book of the Bible that we started studying last week. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 is where we are today. In fact, we're going to breeze through today. We're going to run through chapters 2 and chapter 3. We're going to look at the stories that are there. And what we want to do is focus on some of the key characters that are in this book. Today, we're going to look at Ruth. Next week, we'll look at Boaz. We're going to take a week to look at the life of Naomi. But today, in particular, I want to look at the life of Ruth, and I want to talk about like her profile, her, her character traits. What, what do we see there about the person that she was? We live in a day and time, and I think probably in large part due to the, the things that are available to us online, where we, we study what makes us up quite a bit. You might take personality tests, or you might take some kind of an assessment to see what kind of a person you are. You see this when we try to set up our profiles, social media, or a place like LinkedIn for a lot of business people. You, you want to categorize yourself in certain ways. It's a big deal. You really see this kind of setting up a profile when you get to the world of online dating, a place like eHarmony or Match.com or Christian Mingle. And I wondered, what would Ruth's profile look like if Boaz had found it online, scripturally? Like, where would she have even signed up to date? Would she have gone out to Jewish Mingle? Do you think that's where she went? If you know the story, you know they probably would have met at Farmers Only, right? That's probably where it was. What would she have put in her profile? She'd have had a picture of her standing in front of the Dead Sea, wind blowing through her hair. And she'd write down things like this, that, that the things that were important to her, that she was well-traveled and that she was very close to her family. And she liked things like grain and sheep and long walks in the Bethlehem Hills. Like that would have been probably her profile. What do we know about her? Today, actually, we're going to look at, at five character qualities of Ruth. Five things that we see about her. So we're just going to kind of roll through. And I would encourage you, take time on your own if you haven't already, or especially if you're not familiar with the story, to read the book of Ruth. We, we covered chapter one last week, two and three today. We'll get the tail end of three and chapter four next week. Big deal when we get to chapter four and watch how this whole story wraps up. But if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. It's really a, a pretty quick read, interesting story. Today, we're going to look at Ruth, five character qualities of Ruth. Let's jump right in. Here's the first one. Number one, let's talk about commitment. The first character quality, in fact, from the first words that Ruth speaks in the whole book, what we see is that she was a person of commitment. We, we might even use the, the synonym loyalty when we talk about this. Remember what we covered last week. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, you have a story about a couple. Naomi is the wife. Elimelech is the husband. They live in Bethlehem in the land of Judah or Judea. You'll hear it pronounced different ways. And they live in Bethlehem, and they have for generations. And then a famine hits Bethlehem, and Naomi and Elimelech have to leave Bethlehem and run away from the famine. They go to a place that was, that was protected from the famine because of their geography. They were able to, to thrive even during that time, a place called Moab. Moab, the people there, were enemies of God's people, the Jews. And yet they went there because they just wanted to survive. And they thought they'd go there for just a little while to kind of ride out the famine they went, Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons, Malan and Kilian, 
While they're there, Elimelech dies. We don't know how, we don't know what happened. We just know that he dies. Now Ruth's a widow. She has two sons. They're young, but they're at marrying age. And so they married two wives, Orpah and Ruth. And after they get married, again, we don't know the details, but at some point, Malan and Killian die. Now Ruth's not, no, excuse me, now Naomi's not only a widow, but she has these two daughters-in-law that are under her care as well. And so at some point, she decides, there's a lot of lost in that story, isn't there? It's a sad story if you think of it from just that perspective. And so she decides when she hears the famine is over, 10 years after they've moved to Moab, she hears the famine's over back in Bethlehem, and they decide to go back home. And so she packs everything up, and as they're traveling, she realizes it doesn't make any sense for me to have my daughters-in-law go with me. They're not from Bethlehem. They're not from Judea. And so she says to them, and, and if you read the passage three times, she has to say it, just go back home. Don't go with me. It does not make sense. You're from Moab. You're not from Israel. So don't go back with me because you're, you're not Jewish. You're different. You stay here in Moab. Go back to the home of your mother. There your mother will care for you. She will prepare you to be married again. You're young enough that you can find rest and protection in the home of another husband. So you go back and let me go on my way. And the third time she, she says it, Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, says, okay, I'll, I'll do that. She kisses Naomi and she leaves, which made sense. It was the way for her to have security and protection in her life. She wasn't a bad person. She was actually obeying what her mother-in-law told her to do. But Ruth does something different. The passage of scripture tells us that when Orpah left, Ruth clung to Naomi. She had a commitment to Naomi. And here's what we read that she says about this commitment. And this is a powerful thing. And here's what I want you to see about commitment. Commitment breeds confidence. When you have a commitment in your life, you can have confidence in your life. You can know that you can move forward with a certain sense of certainty and confidence. Ruth chapter one, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Does that sound wishy-washy to you at all? That's confidence, because she made a commitment, and she said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, I'm going where you go, and your people and your God are now going to be mine. And with that commitment that she made, she could move forward with confidence. I think a lot of times the reason that we struggle to know what direction we should go is because maybe we've not fleshed out what we're committed to in our lives. Are we committed to God's word? Are we committed to making wise decisions? Are we committed to being people of wisdom in what we do? This is huge, especially, and you're gonna see a lot of things here today, I think because it's a love story. This is huge in your relationship to your family and especially your spouse. Are you a person of commitment? Because when you don't have commitment, the, the alternative is a shaky thing. When, when we're talking about someone who does not have that kind of faith or commitment, here's what James chapter one says, verse eight, that such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. When you're not committed, when you don't have a conviction, when you don't have the confidence that comes with that, instead you become double-minded, and with double-mindedness comes instability in your life. So commitment is important in your marriage, in what you believe, in how you live out your faith. 
and how you plan your future, when you know what you're committed to, it gives you confidence in your life. And maybe for some of you, as I'm talking about this idea of commitment, you know, or the Holy Spirit's even kind of speaking to you about the place in your life where maybe you felt a little wishy-washy, or maybe God wants you to have a greater commitment. Know this, that commitment breeds confidence and commitment gives clarity. It helps you to know what, what direction you're going in. So Ruth makes this, this commitment to Naomi, and then as soon as she does, watch what happens next. Verse 19 of Ruth chapter one. So the two women, that's talking about Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Have you ever walked into a room and as soon as you walk in, people start whispering? Anybody? Like whether they're talking about you or not, that's a freaky experience. And here's the deal. They probably are. They're probably talking about you. Right, that's what runs through your mind. And the deal is, whether it's out loud or whether it's whispers, when there's that kind of noise, it's distracting. And yet, Ruth walks into a setting where there's all these whispers. Naomi's back after 10 years. Who's that with her? What's going on around here? And with all that noise, she has to move forward in her life with clarity. What gives her that clarity is that she's committed to Naomi. When you experience a lot of noise in your life, one of the best things you can do is hold on to those things that you know you should be committed to. It's not just with the noise. Watch what happens next. The end of chapter one, verse 22. It says, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. For the record, the Moabite was not her last name. But that's what you'll see her called at least seven times in the book. Look at this. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's not her last name, but at least seven times in the book, she's referred to as Ruth the Moabite, Ruth from Moab, Ruth who's not Jewish, Ruth who's from a different place, Ruth who's an outsider, Ruth who doesn't belong here. Like that's what that means. And they say that over and over again. It's tough to, to be in a place where you feel like you don't belong especially if people keep telling you that. How does she do it? Because she'd made a commitment. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And that commitment gave her clarity in life. Look, for all of us, we, we come to moments where we have to make a decision of some kind. And we have to know what it is or who it is that we're committed to. And once you have that, you can have confidence and you can have clarity, but without it, it's a risky thing. I, I have what I refer to as drive-through stress disorder. And that's a very real thing to me. Um, you won't find research on it anywhere because I made it up. But here's how it works. You ever, you ever pulled up to a drive-thru, maybe, you know, fast food restaurant, coffee shop, whatever. You pull up to the drive-thru, and, and when you pull up, you know what you want. You don't, you don't take a half an hour to read the menu board. You pull up, and when the person on the other side speaks through the little speaker and says, you know, can I help you? You know, you say, this is what I want. Now, you might have to read a little bit, or you might have to decide a thing or two, but you, you give your order at that moment, and, that's, and there's people behind you, and you just, it's awkward talking through the speaker, so you just kind of, you give your order. And then, here's when, here's when the stress kicks in. When the person sitting next to you is not sure what they want. 
And so it takes them a while to read the menu board six, seven hundred times. And then they, then they say what they want, and then they change their mind a half a dozen times. That's when I begin to experience drive-through stress disorder. Anyone else? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, careful. If you raised your hand, you're going to have a long trip home. And, and it's, it's like there's people behind, and I want to go, and I'm just, oh, you're, you're supposed to make up your mind before you get up here. Don't make up your mind when you get up here. Apparently, this is not a hereditary disorder, because I'm usually the only person in my car who has it. And it's just like, I just, I just want to go because I feel this stress at all the indecision that's there. Now, look, to be honest, my wife's right when she says, look, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter when you're talking about a sandwich. But it does matter when you're making the big decisions in your life. When you get up to that moment, you got to know what you believe. You got to know who you are. That commitment brings to you that confidence and that clarity, which leads us to the second character quality that we'll see in Ruth's life. They're each going to build on each other today. Number one is commitment. Here's number two. Let's talk about initiative. Number two, initiative. When you get to Ruth chapter two, Ruth gets a job. She doesn't go to the unemployment office and she doesn't log into ZipRecruiter. What she has to do is what was a provision in the scriptures for people who did not have any land, for someone maybe who was in poverty, what they would do is when there was harvest time, one of the things that was a provision in the law was that those who were poor were able to go out into the fields and they would follow the harvesters and whatever was left over, they could collect. The far reaches of the field, like the corners of the field, the owners of the fields were to leave alone so that those that were in poverty could come and could, in the phrases, they could glean they could take what was there, and they could follow behind, and that's how they would care for themselves. And so Ruth knew that she had to do something, and so she chooses to do this gleaning, to go out and to do this. And here's what I want you to see. We're going to read the scriptures about this, but I want you to see this about initiative. Initiative opens the door to God's plans. Oftentimes we wonder, how come I don't know what God's plan is? How come I'm not sure how I'm supposed to proceed in this situation? How come I'm not sure what the direction is? And sometimes it's because we haven't taken the initiative. Initiative opens the door to God's plans. Let's look at the first three verses of Ruth chapter two. Each one's really important. Watch this, verse one. The author of Ruth is giving you a little background information here. They write, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And that's written there, and you almost hear the author of Ruth kind of whispering, remember that. Don't forget that, because that's important. Verse two. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Verse three. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, well, it just so happened. Well, can you imagine this? As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Remember the guy we whispered to you about in verse one? That's the guy whose field she's working in in verse three, because it was God's plan to connect them, but they never would have gotten connected if Ruth hadn't taken the initiative. If she hadn't ever said, I've got to go do something about this. If she had been content to just sit on the couch and watch 
Orpah or Oprah or whoever, you know, on TV, she'd have missed it. But she made a decision to take initiative. When you take initiative, you place yourself in a, in a spot, in a location, in a situation where then God is able to direct your steps and your plan. This is what we read about and we talked about when we were in the book of Ezra a couple weeks ago, where we saw that the people, this, this is kind of what they said, we did our best, God did the rest. We did what we could and then we trusted God and he led us. There's something powerful about when you take the initiative. Initiative opens the door to God's plans and then this one. You see this in Ruth's story. For some of us, this one's a little tricky. Initiative reveals the state of the heart. When you watch someone's initiative, when you see their work ethic, it reveals the state of their heart. So Ruth goes out in the field. She starts her job. She's working in Boaz's field. While she's out there, Boaz actually comes out to kind of inspect what's going on in the field he owns. And he says this, Ruth chapter 2, verse 5. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Well, who's that little lady, he says. Apparently, there was something about Ruth that made Boaz's heart go pitter-patter. Did you see that there? Who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Boaz says to the guy who's taking care of his field, who's that lady? He goes, nah, it's, it's that Moabite. You know, the one that came back with Naomi. She was married to her dead son. Yeah, she's here. Hard worker, though. She got here early and She's been working all day. She just took a little break from the sun out in the shelter. But other than that, she's a hard worker. And it's interesting because what you see is that immediately, if you read through chapter two, Boaz immediately finds Ruth attractive for some reason. I don't think it was just her looks. Have you ever noticed that a strong work ethic is an attractive thing? Anybody? Like there's something about that. Initiative reveals something about our character. It shows the state of our heart. I think work ethic is a barometer of character. If you watch someone, you, you learn about someone, you talk to someone, you interact with them, you learn a lot about them. But when you work side by side with them, that's when you know who they really are. That's when you see what's really inside of them. And this is interesting. Work ethic becomes a barometer of character. And Boaz saw this in Ruth. And what happens is if you miss this, if you lack that initiative, it's a dangerous thing in your life. You can tell a lot about a person. Here's the other thing I've seen. I've noticed in my own life that when I lack initiative, it's often a sign that maybe there's something that needs some work in my character. Anybody? It's a barometer of character. Proverbs 24, verse 30. Look at what we read here. The author of Proverbs writes, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Look, there's nothing wrong with taking a nap from time to time. 
fact, it might be the most spiritual thing that you can do sometimes. But if that's all you do, then it says here, your world's going to start falling apart. There is something powerful about initiative. When I was in college, my, my college roommate had a class at like 7.30 in the morning one semester, and I didn't have a class till like 8.30. I think I've told this story before. And, and he would get up before me, and I would know it was time for me to get up when he was leaving to go to class. And so oftentimes, he would come over, and he would stand right over my bed, and he would go, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. He would quote that verse to me as I was laying in bed. I hate that verse now. <laughs> but I remember it, and I remember that principle. There's something powerful about initiative. First quality we see in Ruth's life is commitment. The second one that we see is the character quality of initiative. Here's the third one. Number three, it's humility. Number three is humility. This takes a little bit of a turn here in what we're talking about, but watch this because each one builds on the other. So Ruth goes out in the field and Boaz notices her. And then when Boaz approaches her, you watch her response to him. Now, I know it was culturally appropriate, but I think it came from her heart. Watch this. Humility allows us to respond with respect. When we recognize ourselves, that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and when we see what Scripture says about how we're to lift other people up, it changes the way we respond. Ruth chapter 2, verse 10 When Boaz approached her at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She approaches this with humility. Look, we we live right now in a culture that's filled with identifying victimhood and people fighting for their rights and people protesting things. And the truth is, sometimes that's, that's the right thing to do. When there's something that is injustice, you need to respond in some way. But I also think that we live in a culture where everyone is quick to protest something. Everyone is quick to see the way where they have been mistreated. Have you noticed that? And sometimes it's just not legit. It's just me in a place where I'm struggling with this idea of humility. And in a culture where we are constantly posturing ourselves, it puts us in a place where we can fail to treat other people with respect. And we miss this critical characteristic of humility We can't forget to treat others with respect. And here's why, because this is a big deal to God. Humility is key to living in favor. If you want to live in favor with God, if you want to live in favor with others, arrogance is not going to get you there. And notice this, you can have humility and initiative at the same time. Look, you can choose to get something done. You can aggressively move forward in what God's called you to, but that doesn't mean that you have to be arrogant or treat other people in a way that's disrespectful because when you respond with humility, it puts you in a place where you can live in God's favor. Do you remember what Ruth said? Ruth chapter two, verse two, she's talking to her mother-in-law. She says, look, I'm gonna go out in a field somewhere and I'm gonna glean somewhere where I hope that I can find favor. Watch what happens. Ruth chapter two, verse 17 For whatever reason, Boaz, when Ruth goes back out after their conversation, after she responds to him with humility, he says to the people in the field, don't let her just get the leftovers. Make sure she gets the good stuff. Make sure that she has plenty. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Now, we don't know what an ephah is in our, in our we, that, that measurement doesn't mean anything to us, but it's about two-thirds of a bushel. So she didn't walk away with a brown paper bag like a lot of other people did. She had a whole lot. 
She had an abundance because she had been given favor because I believe in part her humility. Scripture talks about this over and over again. James chapter four, verse six says that God gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, help me with this, God opposes the, but he gives he shows favor to the, to the humble, right? And then when you get to verse 10 of James chapter four, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility can be tough for us at times, either, either because of our natures or because of our upbringing. But if we would approach situations with humility, it puts us in a place where as we treat others with respect, God is able to bring favor back into our lives. And remember this, when you read this story, you're only getting one day in Ruth's life. Like you're, you're getting this snapshot. You're not looking at the whole journey that it took to get there. One of the things that's challenging about humility is that oftentimes with humility comes patience. How many of us love that? <laughs> it's, it's waiting. It's letting things work out. It may even mean that at some point you're mistreated. Humility is not the easy way. And humility is not always the fastest way, but it is God's way when we trust him, when we respond with respect to others, which, watch this progression here. This is what we see in Ruth's life. You got commitment, then initiative, then humility, which takes us to the fourth character quality that we see, number four. This one gets a little hairy. It's vulnerability. I mean, when I, when I was reading through this story, Every time I read it, I, this, this thought kept coming to me about the vulnerability that's there in this story. Vulnerability is something that we don't necessarily like to talk about a whole lot. I don't know if it's, if it's just kind of some of us, our, our, our prideful nature, whether for me it's kind of my, my American upbringing, right? I'm, I'm self-made. I can do this. I can get that. I'm, I'm my own man. We kind of have those thoughts, right? But vulnerability causes me to drop my guard a little bit. In fact, maybe that's why it's tough for some of us. Because for some of us, we've been hurt in the past when we were vulnerable, and we've said, I'm not doing that again. Watch what you see in this passage. One of the things that you, you see is that Ruth has to respond with a certain sense of vulnerability to receive everything that God has for her. Th this is the interchange that, that Ruth and Naomi have. So she's back talking with her mother-in-law. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Watch this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter... I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Just note to self, we'll get into this more next week, why this was important then, but in, in our day and time now, if you're looking for a spouse, don't look at your relatives, okay? We, we good with that? It was different then. Don't, don't, okay, you got it. Naomi goes on. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Some of you might want to underline that in your Bible. Just uh, wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. There's been a lot of misunderstanding of, of some of those scriptures, and, and we'll get into this even a little bit more next week. There's cultural implications in all of that that we can't understand three millennia later. 
But know this, sometimes people want to look through that through a 21st century lens, through a rated R movie lens, and we want to see Naomi, the mother-in-law, as manipulative, and Ruth, the heroine of our story, as, I think the Hebrew word is floozy. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's how we want to look at this. We don't look at this through a 21st century lens. So the author of the book of Ruth, when he wrote this, and you see this when you go through chapter three, if you'll read it through the lens of that culture in that time, you will see that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz all respond in a way that is God-honoring and they're people of great character. So when you read this, don't read this in some kind of rated R kind of way. Does that make sense? Like this, this is fitting into their culture and at that time. Here's what Ruth and Naomi both know. If Naomi went, or if Ruth went home with two-thirds of a bushel full of grain when everybody else has a brown paper bag, do you think she knows that Boaz kind of likes her a little bit? Like she already knows this. So there's something that's happening there. There's a chemistry that's there. And at some point, it requires her putting herself in a place of, you ready? Vulnerability to be able to move forward in what is there available for her in life. Here's a couple of things about vulnerability that are difficult for us to swallow sometimes. Vulnerability recognizes our need for others. In, in, a, in a world where I wanna be self-made, it can be hard for me to say, I need you and you need me, but it's a part of how life has meaning. Vulnerability means that I recognize, and especially in my closest relationships, that we need each other. Look, I know this passage has some weird cultural implications, and it says an awful lot about how, how um, the genders interact and relate. And a lot of that was cultural then that's different today, but the principle is still very real that we need each other. And that's where vulnerability is important. And no, notice this, vulnerability positions us for further blessing. So many of us, we can be in a place where we're so closed off where we, we fail to make ourselves open to others. For some of us, we fail to make ourselves open to God. Yeah, we believe in him. We want to make sure we get to heaven. But beyond that, we're a little nervous to interact with him because we're afraid of what he might ask from us, and maybe we got hurt in the past. So that vulnerability becomes a really important thing because of where it puts us. Go back to the story. Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, here's what I want you to go do and, and if I'm Ruth and Naomi just told me to go and sneak up on Boaz while he's sleeping, I'm going to go, that's great, but that's easier said than done, lady, right? Watch what she does, verse 7 of Ruth chapter 3. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, do not read there once Boaz was smashed, okay? That's not what it says. What it says is he, he ate and he was in good spirits. Have you ever had a good meal and you sit down on a couch and just go, man, I'm in a good mood. Anybody? I mean, you wish this sermon was over so you could go and, you know what I mean. I didn't like the way you laughed at that, by the way. Boaz went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. That would freak you out, wouldn't it? Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That line, guardian redeemer, we'll unpack that next week. Critical to this whole story, but we'll get there next week. And that phrase, spread the corner of your garment 
over me. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's a lot here going on in that culture 3,000 years ago that we don't understand in our culture today. But here's what we see here. Ruth put herself in a place of vulnerability. And when she did, it was the thing that she needed to do to move her life forward. That's a big deal. Here's why. Because vulnerability allows us to love and be loved. If we close all that up, we miss out on so much. Now, look, I I know you can't be vulnerable with everyone. But some of us, and I I know there's history that you have to consider. We can get so closed in that we miss out because we refuse to let God open us up to what he wants to do in our lives, through others, with others, those kinds of things. Um, Think about this from Boaz's perspective. While everybody else who's out harvesting in his field walks away with a brown paper bag, he lets Ruth walk away with two-thirds of a bushel? And she's not even from around here. You don't think that expressing his love to her didn't make him vulnerable? And Ruth went down and kind of hung out in a really awkward way just because her mother-in-law said, this is the way you got to do it. You don't think that was a vulnerable move? Look, if you want to love and be loved, at some point it requires vulnerability in our lives. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is from his book called The Four Loves. He writes, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap your heart carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Which takes us to the fifth character quality that we see. Commitment, initiative, humility, vulnerability. Number five is love. Now, you, you, don't, you don't see the word love kind of scattered all over the pages of these four chapters, but the whole point of this is it is a love story. It motivates everything that happens here, which causes me to kind of observe a couple of things. One is this, that love is always best as a team sport. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Look, let's just talk about it in the context of marriage. It takes two to make a marriage healthy. You have Boaz and Ruth. You have Boaz loving Ruth, and you have Ruth loving Boaz, and it works in that same way. And sometimes the reason that we struggle in our relationships, and especially in our relationship with a a spouse, is because we fail to recognize that that love has to go both ways. We have to share that with one another. We are on the same team. And when we recognize that, it's so important. I think I've told this story before, and I know uh, I, I tell a lot in premarital counseling, but when our, when our kids were little, our boys played a lot of basketball, and they played in these like rec leagues, like, uh, like the YMCA always has one, that these little guys just kind of go out, and they, learn, they start to learn the basics of basketball. And one of the things that's interesting about those leagues is that they don't keep score, because they want everybody to know that we're all winners, which, by the way, is a lie, <laughs> right? And so do you know who's keeping score that whole time? The kids are. The kids are, do you know who's really keeping score the whole time? This guy, right? Because they're going to ask me if they won. I want to know if they won. I want to know if my kid beat your kid, right? I want to know that. And so I remember, and 
both of our boys did this at some point, that, that there was this point where they're out there, they're playing basketball, some kid shoots the ball up, it goes up, it bounces off the rim, and as it's coming back down, my boy, my son, goes up strong. He grabs that ball. He gets that rebound. He comes back down, and then he goes right back up, and he puts that ball up, and it bounces off the backboard, and it goes right through that hoop, and he scores a point. And I'm standing on my feet. I'm like, that's my boy. And then I realize he just shot that in the wrong team's basket. <laughs> he just scored a point for the other team. And I'm on my feet going, that's my boy. And everybody in the stands is like, yeah, it is. That's your kid. And they're keeping score, right? Now look, that's just, that's just preschool basketball. But when you're dealing with that in life, when your big concern with your spouse is thinking, did I score that point or did they score that point? Am I winning or are they winning? Am I right and they're wrong? Who, who's, who's winning in this relationship? Every time that you score a point and they don't, that means that your team is losing. Does that make sense? Look, you are on the same team. That's love. And some of you would say, couldn't agree with you more. But it seems like my spouse or my boss or my teacher or my you fill in the blank doesn't realize that. They don't see that we're on the same team. What am I supposed to do? Look, first of all, that's a really, really tough situation to be in. And it's real for so many people in so many areas of life. And I don't have an easy answer to that. Here's just, here's just the thing that I know. I know that someday you're going to stand before God. And when you do, I don't think God's going to look at you and say, hey, what kind of spouse was your spouse? He's not going to go, what kind of boss was your boss? What kind of neighbor or what kind of teacher or even what kind of pastor were they? He's going to ask you, what kind of spouse were you? What kind of employee were you? Look, when it comes to this situation of, of living in love, you're only responsible for yourself, which is why this is so important. Love requires action. When we talk about love, you can't just sit back and not do something. It's an active thing. It was Ruth going to the threshing floor. It's what Boaz does in chapter four next week, which is huge, and we'll get there next week. Know this, love requires action. And so let me show you what we're talking about here. Two more verses, and I just, I just don't want you to miss this as we wrap up. When you're in Ruth chapter three, verse nine, when Ruth is, is laying there at Boaz's feet, and he wakes up and he says, who's there? And she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she says, cover me with the corner of your garment. Look, again, culturally, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but it did to them. And in a spiritual way and in a practical way, she was expressing something. Ultimately, she was saying, you know, will you marry me? This, this was a moment of this vulnerability that was there in them signaling to each other the future of their relationship. And she says this, cover me with the corner of your garment. What's interesting is that same language, those same words are used earlier in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter two, verse 12. When Boaz has met Ruth, he blesses her and he says this, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Those, those words there, for under whose wings you have come to take refuge are the same thing that Ruth says to him when she says, cover me with the corner of your garment. And it shows that whether it's the love of God or the love of you for another person, there's this idea that love covers. Like it's, it spreads out. It takes what it has and it covers over something for someone else. 
And I know there's all kinds of ways that we can unpack this, but that, that, that forbearance, that patience, that grace, that forgiveness, love is a thing that, that covers over those things, and you can extend that to other people, and that's where this all pieces together, the commitment, the initiative, the humility, vulnerability. At some point, you have it in your hands to cover over someone else with the love that you have. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. There's something powerful in that. And then this whole idea of, of covered with wings or of covering with a garment, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but I think we can probably get a picture with an umbrella, can't we? That's cool the way that opened, wasn't it? I felt really good about myself there in that moment. Right, the last couple of days, you could use one of these, right? I'll just be real honest, I'm not much of an umbrella guy. I carry them as little as I can because I'm just too masculine for this. But there are times when it's sure good to have one. And there have been times when I've been out and about and it's raining and I don't have one, but somebody else does and I don't want to get all wet. But they say, hey, do you want, you want to come over here? I'll share my umbrella with you. You ever been there? And like somebody does that and there's enough space that it's not awkward and they followed Naomi's advice about washing, right? You know what I mean? And in that moment, it's good to come over under the covering of another person because they extend that. I've been in places where I've been the one with the umbrella and other people didn't have it, and then you get to choose who you invite under your umbrella. That's a good thing because you extend that protection to somebody else. Look, love works in the same way. In a spiritual sense, in a relational sense, you all have an umbrella in your hand and you can cover over someone else with love. You've got that forgiveness that you can extend if you're willing to, to send it that way. You've got that grace. You've got that patience. You've got that love between a parent and a child, between a husband and a wife, between a coworker who drives you crazy, between a neighbor who, do you know what I'm saying here? You have that, that you can choose to extend that protection, if you will. And when you do, that love can cover over a multitude of sins. That's a lesson that we learn from Ruth and Boaz as we watch this and we choose to live in these ways with commitment and initiative, with humility and vulnerability and ultimately in extending love to another person to which you go, man, that Ruth was quite a person. And there's a good chance that one of those five things we talked about may have hit you in a certain place, even to the point where you go, I know that the Holy Spirit's speaking to me about responding in some way. The Holy Spirit's stirring me about responding in some way, but I'm just not so sure how or if I can. One of the interesting little tidbits about the book of Ruth is that in the 12th century, the, the, the Jewish people took um, certain books of the Bible and they, they collected them and arranged them in a certain way. They called it the Megaloth. It was five books of the Hebrew Old Testament that, that's, that's in our Old Testament. And they took these five books and they, they lined them up and arranged them in a certain way because when they would have their different feast days, these would be the books that they would read and they were in the order of the feast. And when they would get to the Feast of Weeks, which is the one that celebrated the harvest, which is around this time of the year, they would read the book of Ruth. And so when they got to the Feast of Weeks, they would read Ruth because it was significant. It was about the harvest. We don't call it the Feast of Weeks in our Christian calendar. Do you know what we call it in our Christian calendar? We call it Pentecost. And today, 
May 20th is the day of Pentecost. And it's so significant that God has us studying the life of Ruth on the day of Pentecost. Not only because it lines up with the, with the way that the Jewish people observe Pentecost, but I also think it's significant because of how we observe Pentecost. We typically don't read the book of Ruth on the day of Pentecost. You know what we usually read? Acts chapter 2 which is about the day of Pentecost and how God gave the Holy Spirit to his people on that day. Do you know why they read Ruth? Because Ruth reminded them that God would provide for them, that he would sustain generations, that he would give them what they needed. And in doing that, God has promised and sent us his Holy Spirit so he could provide for us, so he could sustain us. So if you wonder if you can live up to these five character traits that the Holy Spirit is talking to you, here's the good news. The Holy Spirit will help you to do that. And he'll come alongside of you. So I'm gonna ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And I'm simply gonna pray through those five things. And all I'm gonna ask of you is that, is that if God's speaking to you, if the Holy Spirit's stirring in your heart about one of those five things, would, would you be open to letting his Holy Spirit help you to live that out? Lord, in this moment, you're talking to some of us about commitment. About maybe moving forward with a confidence and a clarity that can only come from you. Lord, we ask that you would, Holy Spirit, come alongside of us as we choose that commitment in our marriages, and in our homes, and in our own character. God, for some of us, you're, you're stirring us to take a step of initiative to move forward so that you can allow your plans to move in. God, would you help us to do that? May our work ethic be attractive to others. Father, some of us are wrestling with humility. Lord, may we be in a place where as we respect others, your favor comes into our lives. Lord, for some of us, whether it's because of our own egos, or pain in the past, vulnerability is a tough thing. May we open up ourselves to those closest to us so that your work can be done in our lives, which all leads us to love, God. May we be willing to take what we have and extend it as a covering over others so they can be protected and grow in their trust in you. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. God, would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.